Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Point number two, obviously, is the advent of the public cloud. This, again, is changing a whole lot. And because the public cloud, we essentially have software getting much more resilient. And that's the value the public cloud brings, right? So typically earlier, you had to spend a whole amount of money on software, install it in a data center. If you needed to scale suddenly, for example, let's say you were anticipating an event like Black Friday or Cyber Monday or any of those shopping events, you had to anticipate that in advance. You had to sort of estimate how much your software load would go up by and then you had to buy hardware to deal with it, right? With the advent of the public cloud, that is gone. That was Vishal Dalal, the CEO of North America, EMEA and APAC for Pismo. And he's my special guest on this episode, episode 243 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. And I'm your host, Greg Myers. He's an avid reader, trivia enthusiast, and spends his spare time evangelizing the gospel of cloud native code. Vishal is this week's leader in payments. Pismo is a cloud-native platform serving large banks, marketplaces, and fintechs globally. Their software works seamlessly, effectively, and nonstop without any interruptions anywhere. Another way to look at them, think the Audubon for financial infrastructure. Vishal and I go on to talk about his journey to the role of CEO, including where he sees the industry going in the next two to three years, including the limitless possibilities of AI. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Vishal. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So let's dive in. If you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. I currently live in London. This is where I run Pismo's international businesses from. I'm responsible for Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, and North America. Grew up in India, so I am Indian by ethnicity, but I've lived all over the world. I'm probably one of those few nomadic executives who's lived almost everywhere. Started off my career in India, went to school over there, then spent about a year in Africa. I think a lot of time in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and then Singapore, then moved to the United Kingdom, then to the United States, then to Australia, and now back to London. So it feels like life's come full circle. So yeah, (laughs) I've racked up. Quite a few air miles, but at the end of it, I find myself here in London. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Well, let's talk about the company Pismo. So tell the audience what Pismo does. Pismo essentially makes what's known as core processing software. The easiest way to describe this is when anyone gets in touch with a bank for any reason, right? So you either swipe your card at a POS machine or you insert your card at an ATM or you log in to the internet portal of your local bank, or you ask for a loan or anything like that, there's this giant piece of software which keeps on doing a whole lot of work in the background. It checks balances, it passes accounting entries for each of these products, it passes payment messages to other banks when needed. It essentially does everything, right? And we make that software. It's a very complex piece of software, can run into millions and millions of lines of code, It needs to work safely, effectively, and nonstop without any interruptions whatsoever, right? So that's what we make. And what we make, I guess, is what I would almost call the electric car version of it. 
obviously there were a lot of companies that were making these pieces of software but they were not on the public cloud and that's what's different about us we make the software and we host it on the public cloud let's double click on a few things so how big is the company the company is growing quite fast we are about 500 strong now that number changes plus or minus you know depending on the month but we are about 500 strong now we were born in brazil and that's where a bulk of the company staff is still there but i think in the last couple of years since we raised a series b funding in november 2021 we've been fortunate enough to have offices in the us in texas in the uk in bristol and london where i am right now in india in singapore and we've now got a small presence in melbourne in australia so altogether around 500 with a bulk of that being in san paulo in brazil and the rest distributed all along the globe. And I assume your primary target market are banks or financial institutions. So is that global? And then what size banks do you target? Our aspirational target market is banks, the large fintechs. And we also have a smattering of a whole group of very interesting clients, for example, stock exchanges. But yes, most of our clients are banks. We target almost every size of bank. Obviously, we love working with all banks. We sort of started off with a Fortune 500 bank. You may have read recently the news. We were selected as the global core DDA system for Citibank, which is obviously a Fortune 50 bank. So we've been lucky in the sense that we've had customers at every end of the spectrum, right? Starting from the really giant Fortune 50 banks, right down to local and regional banks, right down to fintechs. And so in general, I think we work well with all of them. And obviously the larger banks, I would assume, are very much, you build the relationship, but maybe the smaller banks or even the fintechs, do you work through direct sales teams to go after those? Or do you have like referral networks or how do you target that smaller end of the market? I think it has to be a mixture of everything, right? We were lucky when we grew up in Brazil because of the great platform that our founders built that most of the work we got was through referrals, right? So we never really had to spend too much on marketing. Once you have a Fortune 500 bank and if you do a good enough job, in general, word of that tends to spread pretty fast. And I think that's what happened with us. So pretty soon, we were a pretty prominent entity in Brazil, which is our home market. When I came on board to start expanding internationally, my sense was that it would take some time for us to win our first client internationally. But luckily for me, that didn't happen. Our reputation spoke for itself. We got our first client just about five months after I joined. And since then, it's been a mixture of many things. It's been a mixture of inbound interest through our website. It's been a mixture of us reaching out to people that we knew previously and trying to show them the software and seeing if it sort of piqued their interest. And it did right down to actually going in and participating in formal RFPs, which is the way banks tend to decide these things. So it's a mixture of everything. I think we tend to adopt a horses for courses approach. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to dive a little deeper into it. What differentiates your company from your competitors out there? I see three major points of differentiation, but you know, I have to hasten. This is what I see from my perspective. One obviously is that a lot of our competitors tend to play in one end or one sort of group of products. For example, you'll find competitors who do just the banking side of it, which is current accounts, savings accounts, deposits. You will find competitors who do just payments, for example, right? Or you will have competitors who do just lending. 
I think one major differentiator is you're much more universal. So we have all of these on a single platform. So payments, cards, banking, lending, all of that on a single platform. I think that's number one. I think the second thing is a lot of our immediate competitors in the cloud native world typically tended to cater to what we call the greenfield market, right? So if there's a bank which is establishing a new greenfield digital bank alongside the main institution or fintechs, right? That's where the positioning typically was. We've tended to try and cover a bit more. So we tend to cover brownfield builds, right? We tend to cover legacy banks trying to move on to more modern infrastructure, which is a different level of complexity. So I would say that's the second thing. We're not just greenfield. And I think the third thing is we only... So far, we only operate on the public cloud, right? So in general, we won't typically host on an on-premise data center or on a hybrid cloud. We've largely tended to be very public cloud native so far. And that's been a conscious decision. It might change in the future, but that's what we've chosen to do for now. So I would say these are the three core differentiators, if you will. This might be an odd question, but you've mentioned in the way you've positioned and talked about the company is that it's software what I hear a lot is there's banking platforms. Are you purposefully differentiating software from platforms or are those terms really interchangeable and you're just choosing software? No, I think since they're interchangeable in the technical sense of the word, I think a bit of context is necessary over here. The old legacy versions of what we're doing were essentially what you would call packaged software, right? So a bank would essentially order the software and you could almost think of it as a huge piece of software coming in the mail, well, not necessarily in the mail, and the bank opening it, installing it, putting it onto a data center, right? So the purest form of enterprise software. Where I think it evolved into a platform is the current implementation of it, which is, this is hosted on the public cloud and it is hosted as software as a service, right? So what happens when a bank chooses us is they simply get a login ID. I'm oversimplifying it, of course. And they basically then onboard onto the platform. So that's where the slight subtle shift from enterprise software to platform happened. So we're always there. A new bank joining us simply gets onboarded onto it, right? But it's running 24-7 in the public cloud. And I think that's where the slight nuance is. Thanks for that explanation. I appreciate that. So when you think about the industry as a whole, whether it's the broader financial services or more specifically kind of in your expertise, where do you see the industry headed in, say, the next two to three years? Two to three years, as, as I found out, is a very, very long time. It wasn't that way always, but these days, it's essentially a very, very long time. A lot is changing, and primarily that's being driven by three or four major factors. One, obviously, and I'm sure you know this probably better than me, is the advent of smartphones, right? So there's a whole lot of banking that's happening largely on smartphones. And it's not just simple functionality like checking your balance and making a payment. That functionality is getting more and more complex, more and more high speed, more and more immediate. So I think that's point number one. Point number two, obviously, is the advent of the public cloud. This, again, is changing a whole lot. And because the public cloud, we essentially have software getting much more resilient. And that's the value the public cloud brings, right? So typically earlier, you had to spend a whole amount of money on software, install it in a data center. If you needed to scale suddenly, for example, let's say you were anticipating an event like Black Friday or Cyber Monday or any of those shopping events, you 
had to anticipate that in advance you had to sort of estimate how much your software load would go up by and then you had to buy hardware to deal with it right with the advent of the public cloud that is gone the software tends to sort of anticipate traffic take care of it and so that's basically been huge and obviously i think the third thing is the advent of digital ecosystems this has been driven by the fact that the internet is now largely learning to speak one business language which is the language of apis it's very easy for me now as a banker or as a product owner in a bank to hit up three or four different companies which do different things really well and connect them up through restful apis and you suddenly you basically have a new product or a new process or a new customer experience right very easily in a matter of sometimes hours so those three things have sort of changed how banking is done obviously there are a few other things happening i think they're at their initial early stages and there's no saying where they could go for example things like central bank digital currencies or things like for example countries starting to introduce real time payment systems and account to account payments so all of those things are interesting we're having to watch them on a daily basis which is part of the fun of the job but i think these are the few things that are influencing this ecosystem as a whole so if you were to ask me to sum it up i would essentially just use the olympics right it's going to be higher faster and stronger right things will happen much faster systems will be much stronger they'll be much more democratized and we'll start reaching more and more people dare i ask about ai and where that plays into this i think the potential is limitless right i spend about an hour every day not in a very regimented manner thinking about where this is going to help us now obviously we are a core software firm right so we don't typically there are things that we don't do we let our partners do themselves for example the user experience or we'll supply the data we tend to depend on our customers or the banks that use it to sort of monetize it what we are is essentially the autobahn for financial infrastructure we enable high speed high resilience transaction processing but even with us we don't deal with risk systems we don't deal with things like that but even for us we're starting to see very important use cases in ai especially generative ai right which is i guess the flavor of the month so we're starting to see internal use cases for example let's say i hire an engineer an engineer who hasn't done any financial software processing hasn't written any software in the financial services space and let's say the engineer comes on board he has to absorb a huge amount of content before he becomes truly productive this process used to take about 3 or 4 months but we're now starting to see with the advent of ai that a lot of that output can be delivered much quicker right an engineer can just ask the right questions and become much more productive because there's a piece of generative ai which looks at all of the content that we have and gives out a distilled answer so we're starting to see the emergence of these cases and that's very important right and i think the sky is the limit here obviously this is sort of less up our alley than let's say someone who's doing risk or someone who's doing customer service and things like that we are almost the downstream plumbing which enables that but even with that we're seeing a whole lot we've all heard the terms embedded payments or integrated payments and of course it's a huge trend in our industry but the truth is there's so much more to the story So in collaboration with NMI, the fully integrated payment solution built to scale, we've launched the Be Solid campaign, where we're exploring embedded finance with guests from leading companies like KeyBank, Bain Capital Ventures and more. To listen to the latest episodes, visit leadersinpayments.com or nmi.com/resources/podcast. In a world full of squares and stripes, Be Solid 
So let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about you. You mentioned you went to school or to university in India. So maybe walk us through your career journey, how you got from that point in time to where you are today. I finished my post-graduation and MBA effectively. India in 98, I started off in software. Then I joined banking. I met a public record. I worked with Citibank for about six, seven years, where I implemented the older version of what we build now over here. I then switched over to Barclays. I was there for about five years. But again, you know, that's what I did. I implemented the older version of these softwares, what we call the legacy version of the software. And I did that all around the world. I was lucky enough to travel a lot. I was lucky enough to live in very diverse countries, Kenya, South Africa, a little bit in UAE, in Egypt, in Tanzania, then in Singapore, which later became home, then in Australia, right? So quite a bit. And then I wanted to sort of get a broader view on the industry, not just the technical view and the functional view. I wanted to get a broader view. So I switched over to management consulting. I worked for a firm called McKinsey & Company, where I was a partner and I worked very closely on the banking technology strategy part of the business. Learned a lot. Again, lived in many different countries. Started off with Singapore, then with the United States and then Australia. And then as luck would have it, I wrote a small paper on the future of cloud native code processing software and came in touch with Pismo. Things clicked found the founders a very, very interesting bunch of people who sort of kept challenging the thinking. We sort of got to talking and it felt like it was a very interesting opportunity. And if you think about it, I spent the first 12 years of my career implementing, I guess, legacy systems. I spent the next 10 years in McKinsey talking to banks about how to implement the newer class of systems. And then this opportunity came along, which almost felt like a logical progression, right? Almost running a business which produced the newest form of the software. And it felt irresistible. It's been a whole lot of fun since then. So here I am. And what really attracted you to Pismo? I mean, was it the founders and their vision or was it something else that attracted you? Two or three things were very helpful. One obviously was the founders. I thought they balanced the audacity that is needed to disrupt something like this with just the right amount of pragmatism. And I really liked that a lot. They were very sort of low-key, but... They made up for that with the intensity with which they brought the platform up. So I think that was number one. Second, obviously, there was a bit of a surprise element, right? I mean, it was my job to track this sector. And it almost felt like I had a particular set of views, right? That to break or to disrupt the sector, a firm would have to do certain things, like migrate a Fortune 500 bank from legacy to the cloud. And it almost felt like this firm had done it all under the hood almost without coming to anyone's attention. And it had sort of, you know, started breaking new ground. And I thought that was very cool. So I liked that a lot. And third, I think uh, the only continent that I hadn't really worked in was South America. So, you know, that sort of filled in a whole bunch of gaps, right? And so it's been a lot of fun ever since. Awesome. What are some things you're passionate about? So maybe one work-related passion and one personal passion. Work-related, I think I spend most of my time thinking of ways to spread the gospel of cloud-native core processing, right? The public cloud is a very fascinating animal. There are things that it does really well. So, for example, earlier you used to sort of deploy the software in a data center, which typically represents a single point of failure. The cloud has sort of taken that away and it has democratized everything. So, effectively, anyone with a bright idea and a credit card can now do crazy things. And so, I spend my time 
thinking of ways to evangelize this thing that the founders have built. And I sort of enjoy every aspect of it. In my spare time, I'm a bit of a bookworm. <laughs> I like reading a lot, nonfiction. I do a lot of trivia quizzing. So I've sort of participated in TV quiz shows. I love doing that sort of stuff. I also read a lot. Recently, I've taken up uh, martial arts, right? I'm told that there has to be balance within the physical and the mental side of hobbies. And so I'm doing a whole lot of that. Okay, great. Another question I love to ask this because of the everyone's unique experiences, I think, bring a different answer to the table. But basically, in this day and age, people going to college, university, they can take courses in fintech or payments or financial services, and they may look to our industry, our industry being the broader financial services or fintech, and they want to build a career in this industry. I mean, I started in it 20 years ago, and I had no desire to build a career in it, but I think that's changed where people see that the money that's being invested and the cool technology that's being built and all the neat things that are being done in our industry. So they say, hey, I'm interested in building a career here. So let's say the scenario is someone's coming right out of school. They come to you. They say, hey, what do I need to do to be successful in this industry? What would you tell them? That's a very interesting question. I've been sort of challenged to think about it from the other side of the table as well, because we always look for talent in this area and real talent is not easy to find. So I've had to grapple this problem both from the side that you mentioned, which is I, as an executive, what did I need to do to sort of almost switch careers to this industry? And also from the other side, we're, like, we're constantly looking for talent. I think my view initially started out as a very orthodox one. I used to think that having a computer science degree or having a technical degree was essential, right? I think I've since changed that. And I think my views have become much more, I guess, first principles. So I think there are three or four things that are important. One, I think is you have to want to be inquisitive. And I'm aware this sounds very vague, but that doesn't make it any less truer, right? You have to sort of constantly look at every single business model. You have to be able to interrogate it in an intellectually honest way and say, what is wrong with this model? Is it really helping solve a problem or is it much more of a me too proposition? Is it just working on hype? So I think the ability to interrogate that matters. So I think that's number one. Second, I think the backbone of this industry is built on technology. Even if you don't have a technical degree, I think the technological inquisitiveness has to be there. It's no longer enough to abstract it out and say, oh, that's the tech team's problem. You have to understand why, for example, the cloud works and why sometimes it doesn't. You have to understand at a technical level, what the cybersecurity and data privacy challenges are. It's not enough just to sort of stick to that at a high level. Point number three is you've got to sort of be empathetic and inquisitive. There's a huge difference in how something works in one part of the world and how something works in another part of the world. And you have to be both empathetic and inquisitive as to that. And I think finally, you've got to be very open to new experiences. And that's not just a cliche. I think I've sort of put that to the test more than once by working in almost every single continent in the world. And I can tell you, I'd say about 50% of whatever little I've managed to achieve is because I've had the fortune of seeing that diversity of views come together in front of me. So I would say those four things matter quite a lot. 
Yeah, I would totally agree. I think that's a very, very good answer to the question. That's for sure. So we've covered a lot of ground already, obviously, about you and your background and the company and the industry as a whole. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up the show? It's been a lot of fun. I started off my career as a software engineer, and I think I've seen my career sort of evolve in very fascinating ways, which I couldn't have imagined. I sort of now sit at the intersection of product and strategy. I've been fortunate enough to have a ringside seat at this show with some of the smartest people in the industry. And I consider myself very lucky there. And so I think what I answered in my last question is something I'd like to emphasize to anyone who's watching. Be open to new experiences, right? Take the risks. I found out that life has a way of rewarding you in very weird ways for all the risks that you take. I totally agree. Real quick, what's the best way for people to learn more about you and more about the company? For those who are basically looking to understand who we are, what we do, our website is a great resource. It starts off right from the basics in a very easy to understand way. All of us are always around. Our sort of email IDs and our contacts are always there, right? I think Patricia and the marketing team do a wonderful job of evangelizing our message. For the more technically inclined, all of our documentation, all of our sandboxes, all of the stuff that developers like to play around with is all public. None of it is hidden beyond a firewall or anything like that or beyond a paywall. All of that's available. As people say very often, we're an open book, right? Come and read us. Great. All right. Well, that'll wrap up the show. And I know your time is very valuable, so I want to be sensitive to that. So thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 